Um, hello, church. My name is Stephen, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from John 17, 1 through 5 and 24. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give, him, give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Well, uh, good morning, True North. My name is Eugene. I'm, I'm a member of the pastoral staff here, um, and I also have the privilege of giving today's word. Uh, we've been going through the sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we're coming close to the end of it. And, and this week, we're going to really, I wish we could spend more time, but we're going to take a look at what theologians often call the high priestly prayer. Um, it's the prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the cross. And if you uh, read closely in the Gospels, it's actually the only prayer that's recorded exactly what Jesus is saying to the Father. Um, even with the Lord's Prayer, he didn't actually pray that. He gave it to us to pray to God. But in this, we have a very intimate picture of what Jesus' heart is. And one of the biggest questions, uh, and there, there could be so many things we go through, but one of the biggest questions Jesus is trying to answer uh, for us is this. What is eternal life to you? What is eternal life to you? Uh, if, if you've been uh, online for the past couple of weeks, uh, there's this crazy, crazy app. Uh, I don't even know what, no, AI thing uh, called ChatGPT. Uh, you, you might know of it. Basically, it's an AI uh, learning software where you can ask it a bunch of questions and it replies with very scary, human-sounding uh, like answers. Uh, I've, I've spent like too many hours on it. Uh, I even asked for a sermon outline of John 17, and it gave me a better sermon than my own. Uh, so that was a little scary. Um, I've, I've, done, I've, I've made Drake songs about tangerine. It's really fun. Uh, you should do it. It might solve humanity or end it. I'm not sure. Um, but I asked it a question in light of uh, the text today. Um, I think, I, and it'll be up on the screen, I asked it, uh, what, what is eternal life uh, in Christianity? Uh, and I'm expecting, like, you know, it, it's the AI, and it's proven to me so far, it, it gives very sound and astute answers. What is eternal life in Christianity? And I, before the AI answers, I would ask you, uh, human intelligence, um, what is eternal life in Christianity for you? How do you picture it? Uh, in a room this large, I'm sure there's a varying uh, degree or spectrum of how you would answer that. But I think how the AI answered is uh, pretty standard to what we believe it to be as well. This is what the AI uh, chat GBT replied to me. Uh, in Christianity, eternal life is a gift from God that is given to believers in Jesus Christ. It is the promise of being with God forever in heaven after physical death. In the Bible, eternal life is often referred to as, quote-unquote, life in the world to come or life in the age to come. It is seen as the ultimate goal and reward for those who trust in God and follow his teachings. Pretty scary, because that's like, I, I can't even write something that, that like, uh, you know, articulate. Um, and this is the thing. I would argue that most of us would agree with this answer. 
that eternal life is heaven. It's getting somewhere after you die. But this is the thing, AI, uh, and I believe us, we are mistaken if that's the full extent of how we define eternal life. Look, eternal life, there's nothing wrong with what, you know, our AI master told us, right, our overlords. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that definition. But that just scrapes the surface of the entirety of what Jesus is trying to get at, of what eternal life is. Because this is the thing for many of us, if eternal life is simply life after death, we're missing out on so much that Jesus offers us today in the present. You know, so often when I ask you what is eternal life, you often think, oh, it's getting to heaven after we die. But this is the thing, if that is the full extent of what you are here for, Jesus is reduced to just a life insurance policy that you found out a good deal. The deal is show up to church, you know, maybe three Sundays out of the four, serve when you can, read the Bible when you feel like it, pray when you feel like it, raise your songs in worship, and ta-da, I'll be in heaven. The problem with that thinking, if that is your definition of eternal life is, that is why so much of our faith and our discipleship is stale and cold and dead. That is why I think so many of us, quote unquote, deconstruct our faith because we realize if that's it, if that's what Christianity offers us, that is not enough. And the beauty of this prayer is Jesus says that is also not enough. That's not wrong. Yes, eternal life is paradise awaiting for you after death, but it is so much more. We, what if, I'll propose to you, what if we could access eternal life today? In the present, in the mundane, in the ordinary. Because that is what Jesus is getting at. So if eternal life is part of that, but there's a part missing, well, how does Jesus define it? If eternal life is not just being on a cloud in heaven and playing a harp forever, how does Jesus define eternal life to be? Again, in John 17, as we just read, it's a manifesto of sorts. It's Jesus saying, up until this point, everything that I've been doing is pointing to the cross. And the prayer that he prays right before he gets to the cross, what he's revealing is, this is my true intent, desire of my whole ministry here on earth. And for people in that age, but also for us as well. He's revealing, this is what I've been doing, all the healings. The Holy Spirit, as Jay preached on last week. The reason I came and word became flesh, all of this is because of this, so that you could have eternal life today. If we go back to verse 3, let's read very closely what Jesus tells us in this prayer. Jesus tells to the Father and also tells to us, and this is eternal life. And, And note this, eternal life is mentioned all throughout Scripture by Paul, by Jesus. Yet this is the only point in the Bible where it's defined clearly. It's the only point in the Bible where this is, God says this is what eternal life is. And, and, and pay attention very closely to what it is. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice there is a lack of a place or a time. You see, for, for us, when we think about eternal life, we're concerned with where is it? And how long will I have it? That's why we think about heaven. That's why we think about, oh, I can't wait till we die to get to heaven. And that's true. But look, note very closely, Jesus does not ever give you, this is where it is. This is how long it is. No, he doesn't do that. Rather, eternal life in Jesus' eyes and the reality of it is that it's a perpetual state of relationship with God. That is eternal life in itself. In other words, eternal life in Christ and in God is not a matter of quantity of life. It's a matter of quality and depth of life. 
You see, so much of Christianity is so worked up with, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. But if that's the case, you're going to be very bored on earth just waiting and worshiping. And Jesus says, I agree, that's not the point. Eternal life is being in a perpetual state of a relationship with God the Father. What is Jesus getting at? Jesus, if you look closely at the text, he's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, uh, if you remember the story, Adam and Eve are living in eternity. They're living in eternal life. And it's in the Garden, and it's not just a location, but it's more of they're living in eternity because they are in perfect, intimate, transparent, vulnerable relationship with God. They're in this covenant. They're in this union. And in the Garden of Eden, God says, you can stay in this eternal life, in this quality, in this depth. This is how life should be. You can stay in it. As long as you do not eat from the tree of knowledge. You see, what Jesus is kind of hearkening back to with a little bit of wordplay of himself is he's reversing that curse. See, in Adam and Eve, once they fell, once they took from the tree of of fruit of knowledge, or the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and committed the first act of sin, rather than living in eternal life, they were living in perpetual death. Everything surrounded them was all of a sudden tainted by death. Childbirth was now painful. Work will now be exhausting and and burdensome. Some things that all of us feel. This is what Jesus is getting at, and I hope this is clear. Eternal life is not somewhere we go. Eternal life is a perpetual state of relationship with God. What that means is this. We, Christians, non-Christians, skeptics, whoever you are, you can access that today. That is what Jesus is offering you. You see, so much of Christianity as a pastor, what frustrates me is people come to it with preconceptions of what this is. Of, man, if I just do the right things, if I give enough money, if I serve, then I'll get into heaven. I mean, partially that could be true, I could argue. But Jesus, there's so much more depth to Jesus uh, as a person. You see, what Jesus is saying is you can access this now. How? By knowing the one true God in Jesus. By knowing him. And you might think, okay, that sounds like, am I supposed to study about God? Am I supposed to just study the scriptures and that's eternal life? And I guess to give more context, in, in the Old and New Testament, the word to know, both in Greek and Hebrew, did not just mean the logical sense of knowing. No, in the Old and New Testament, knowing was much more a, a deeply relational and experiential knowledge. You see, knowing in the Bible is not just your mind, but it's entering into this experiential relationship. Oftentimes in the Old Testament when it says a man shall know his wife and a wife shall know her husband, it's not just a logical knowledge. What it's referring to is sexual intimacy. Because what what that means is knowing is not just in the mind. It's something much deeper. And and you might think, okay, that's that's great. It's a cool like theological tidbit. How does that affect me today? If I know God, if I enter into a relationship with him. Because honestly, if you grew up in the church, or even if you didn't, it sounds very cheesy. We'll be in relationship with God. But oftentimes we've allowed our cheesiness or our preconceptions of Christianity to cloud the depth of what God offers us in relationship with him. Because we know this. Because in your own lives, I would promise you this, if you look back in your own lives, there are certain relationships that you carry that change the nature of how you live life. There are certain relationships that you have that bring much more life than anything else could give you, even if you had all the material possessions in your life. Even for myself. So growing up, um, I had a lot of social anxiety. Um, Whenever I entered into a a new social environment, I would be very self-conscious. 
for a number of reasons. Um, people know this, but I have a really big forehead, as you can already tell, right? Um, I, have, I have a weird body. I have really short legs and a long torso. My whole life, I was made fun of that, right? So I was always very self-conscious um, and, and always very anxious walking into any, any social setting. And things would change as I got older, as I made friends, as, as I kind of matured as a person. But the biggest change, I would say, was after I got married, after I entered into a covenant, a union, a loving union with my wife. Because what happened was, what, what this ring signifies with my covenant with my wife is that she knows me. She knows the good and the bad. She knows I have a really big forehead. Right? She knows like, I have a weird sense of humor. Right? She knows like, I get really uh, crazy when the Warriors are playing or whatever it may be. She knows all that and yet she still chooses to stay with me. That relationship, that knowledge I have of that relationship, that's not just logical but relational, experiential, that changes so much of my own confidence now when I walk into social. If I walk into a new room, I really don't care what you think about me because I have a loving wife and two kids back at home, right? Like you can make fun of my forehead, you can say hey, whatever you want, but as long as I know that I have this relationship, even if my wife is not present in those situations, that relationship changes how I deal with the nature of that reality. And, and I want to make this clear. I'm not saying marriage solves everything. If you're married, you know that. But marriage is a picture of the union we have with God. And what Jesus is saying is this. That all your anxieties, all your stress, you could have eternal life if you enter into a relationship with me. You know this with the human relationships, and yet we never try this with the relationship with our own God. Do we deepen our own relationship with God so that we can access this eternal life now? And this is the thing. This is so different than any other God or religion. Any other system of philosophy or religion, what it says is if you want to have eternal life, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You have to make sure you atone for your sins. You have to make sure you sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yet God and Jesus does not say that. He says to have eternal life is to simply know me. See, the mistake that we make in our church and in our culture is so much of our faith and our relationship with Christ and God is not relational but transactional. So much of it is, hey, I will worship you as long as I get what I need and then I'll give you what I think you deserve. We treat Jesus more like our Costco membership than an actual relationship. And this is the problem. When we do that, we miss the intimacy and depth that is available. We miss eternal life. And again, when I say eternal life, not the quantity of life, but the quality of life. That no matter what circumstance you're in, what Jesus is saying is you can have eternal life, even if everything is stripped away. To, 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 I guess picture this a little bit better. There's a German uh, Christian scholar by the name of Gerhard Lofink. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But he had a very profound idea where his, his case was when you adore God rather than asking him for things, in that moment of adoration, you're living in eternity. Let me quote him and I'll explain a little bit further. In adoration, we ask nothing more of God. When I lament before God, it is usually my own suffering that is the starting point. Even when I petition God, the occasion is often my own problem. I need something from God. And even when I thank God, unfortunately, I'm usually thankful for something I have received. But when I adore, 
when I let go of myself and look only to God, the boundary between time and eternity is removed. What is, what is he talking about? We, let me explain this on more of a human term. Uh, there are moments in our own relationships where maybe it's a friend, uh, maybe it's a group of friends, maybe it's uh, your, your groomsman or your bridesmaid, maybe it's your husband or your wife, maybe it's your kids. There's a moment of relationships, a true relationship, where there's a moment where there's just complete adoration. So meaning that you want nothing from that person and that person wants nothing from you other than just your presence. Right? You guys know this. There's moments where you're with your friends and you just can't stop laughing. There's moments when you're with your family and you take a step back in that moment and you realize, I'm so thankful to have this family. There are moments with, you know, whatever relationship you have where it's complete adoration. And if you think about those moments, those moments, you wish you could live in them forever. Because they give you life. It's in those moments when you want nothing of that person and you know and trust that person wants nothing of you other than your presence, you can live in that. You want to live in that eternity. What Gerhard is saying and what Jesus is saying is this. You can have that with God. You can have that relational depth and intimacy with God. When we set time on our own to adore who God is, we no longer live out of shame or fear. We no longer live out of reaction, but we live in eternal life. And this is the thing. When Jesus says, I, I can give you eternal life as long as you know me, he doesn't say, I can take away your pain. He does not say that. He says, in your pain, in your brokenness, you could have eternal life. It's a perspective change. Because this is the thing. After Adam and Eve fell from the Garden of Eden, everything they did was out of shame and fear. It's the opposite of eternal life. They cover themselves up when God says, where are you? Why do they do that? Because they're, they're reacting out of shame and fear. They're not living in eternal life. They're living in eternal death. And this is the thing. In our own lives, what Jesus is proposing is you could have eternal life back now that I'm here. Because this is the thing. So many of us, we live reactionary. If our kids are throwing a tantrum, if our husband or wife, if we're in the midst of a marriage that's about to be on uh, the verge of a divorce, when we have anxiety from work, don't you wish you could spring from the well of eternal life? You can. As long as you choose to know who God is. And who does God say he is? Through Jesus, he says, I am someone who's coming to save you. And yet, with all that, there is something that stops us from fully knowing God to live in this eternal life that he offers us. And what stops us is often we want to chase our own glory. What stops us from living an eternal life with God in the present, now I'm not talking about in heaven, but I'm talking about in the present, not quantity of life, quality of life. What stops us is our own chase for glory. Where do I get this from? You know, in, the, in this prayer, I had a hard time uh, dissecting the text because Jesus in the prayer jumps around like crazy with, with a lot of themes. Uh, and I, even in this whole text, this could be a whole year-long sermon series. But one thing that really struck me is he talks about eternal life and glory. He keeps kind of going back and forth. Why does he do that? Verse 24, it, it, this is something that should strike you as strange. Father, I desire that they, meaning we, his people, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me for the foundation of the world. To see my glory. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus want us to see his glory? What is glory? 
You know, glory is one of those words that's often used in the church. So, so too, too regularly without any definition. And maybe that's a fault of the pastoral ministry that you've been under. But even for myself, no one's really clearly defined what glory is. What is, if I sat you down in a coffee shop and I asked you, hey, define to me in one sentence, what is glory to you? Right, it could be a, a myriad of things. But in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the, the word for glory is kavod. And what that means is literally a weight, a heaviness. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, one of his famous books called The Weight of Glory because what he was getting at is glory is this presence, is this heaviness, is this weight that you feel when something is grand. You feel it. Uh, to, to, to explain this better, uh, me and uh, Pastor Jay went to Portland uh, a couple of weeks ago for, for a conference. We have, we have a lot of crazy stories randomly from that conference. Um, but one of the craziest stories is uh, we're at a steakhouse and we're eating. And after we eat, uh, we're, we're with one of Jay's good friends. Uh, he's a pastor too. And we just kind of uh, get sent, after we eat, we, we get into this lounge area in the steakhouse. And we're just catching up, just talking, right? just, just having fun. They're the NBA game, I think the Warriors were playing the Suns and we're watching that. Um, and it's this small lounge, but you can tell it's kind of like, it's a lounge, but there's also these private tables behind it. And then these guys walk in, these big guys, and then we find out they're D1 uh, college and, and football players. One of them played in Utah, one of them played somewhere else in Hawaii. Like, oh, that's cool. We're just kind of like, you know, just breaking the ice and getting to know them. And out of the corner of my eye, as we're just talking and watching the game, this huge group of people walk in. Huge group of people. And if you, to give, take a step back, I, I'm a huge NBA fan. Uh, I, I'm like, I, I love the Warriors. I love Steph Curry. But I, I love the NBA in general. Uh, and, and I randomly know a lot of players. Out of the corner of my eye, this huge group walks in, and in walks in Cal Lowry. Uh, Cal Lowry is, is a point guard for the Miami Heat. Behind him comes Chauncey Billups. Uh, he, he's probably a Hall of Famer. He's, he's a coach of the Blazers. And then walks in Karam Butler, who's kind of like an NBA legend. And these guys walk in. And I always told people, like, hey, I, I never get starstruck. Like, the only person I would get starstruck for is Steph Curry. If LeBron walked in front of me, he'd be like, oh, whatever, it's fine, right? Now, that's all cap. I was lying. Because when those guys walked in, I was like, oh, my gosh, right? And me and Jay like locked eyes, and we're like, oh, my gosh. It's Kyle. And we're like, we're like checking. it's Kyle Lowry, it's Kyle Lowry, right? And it, I could, it, Kyle could tell, like, we were, like, you know, just kind of like, what's up with these guys? Um, and so bad, I wanted to, like, turn around and be like, hey, Kyle, can I get a picture? But I, I was terrified, right? Why? Uh, th- I felt, maybe it's just my own perception, but I felt this heaviness, this weight of their status, as a person, that, that's what glory is. And, and, like, we know this in relational terms, but even, hey, look, when you, I think most of us have been to Yosemite. When, when you drive through that tunnel in Yosemite, if you don't know, you, you drive through this tunnel, and then you get this kind of long, kind of just journey road, you get through this tunnel, and then right when you exit the tunnel, you see the whole valley of Yosemite. And you often stop, and, and you sit there, and you stand there, and you just kind of take it all in. And if you've been there, do you remember the first time you were there? Do you remember kind of like seeing, even, I remember even as a kid, I was probably six or seven, I stood there and there was this weight that I felt. There was this heaviness, there was this awe that I felt, this glory that I felt, that I'm witnessing something so much greater than myself. That is what glory is. And, and that definition is very key because this is the thing. Many of us believe in God. We believe that Jesus came and you know, died for our sins and was resurrected. We believe that he is sovereign. We believe that he is all-powerful. But we don't see his glory. Because this is the thing. If you believed in him, then what do we have to worry about? 
what is there to worry about if we have true, if we truly believe in the God that is in this Bible? What is there to worry about if we believe in Jesus, God who became flesh, came to us and said, even if you die, I will be with you. What is there to worry about? The reason we still worry is because we don't see God's glory. Because we're more concerned with our own glory. You see, if, if glory is heaviness and weight, we want, to sure, we want to increase that weight for ourselves. We want to have that feeling, like when Kyle Lowry walked into that lounge, of like, look at my achievements, look at my resume, look at what I did, look at my net worth, look at my family, look at my glory. We want that for ourselves. That's, that's just human nature. But the reason Jesus says, make sure you see my glory is because he knows if you seek your own glory, you will not have eternal life. Right? Note in verse 3, Jesus mentions to, to have eternal life is to know not just the God, the only true God. The only true God. Why does Jesus add that? Because all of us, we're all worshiping something. We're all at the altar of something. We're all seeking eternal life from something to increase our own glory. I quote this a lot, but David Foster Wallace, who's an author, he puts it really well. He says, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you have is what you get to worship. What Jesus is saying is, so often, this eternal life, it's not in heaven. It's here right now for you. But what stops you is your own glory of whatever you're worshiping. We all seek this. We have our own altars of worship. Maybe it is work. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's deeper, darker things. I don't know. But in all those things, you're seeking to increase your own glory. And this is the thing. How does Jesus approach his own glory? Like Jesus, Jesus is God who became flesh. He has glory. How does he describe his own glory? If you go back to the text in verses 4 to 5, it's a stark difference between our own chase for glory. And this is a funny thing. He says, verse 3, this is what eternal life is. Know God, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ. Verse 4 and verse 5. You know, he's trying to follow a train of thought. I glorified you on earth. I glorified basically God the Father. I glorified the God the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, very key right here, with the glory that I had, past tense, that I had. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why is Jesus referred to his own glory in past tense? Even if you go back to the text, verse 1, if you start with the whole prayer, Father, the hour has come. What is the hour? The cross. I'm about to die, God. How does Jesus respond in prayer? Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Do you see what Jesus is doing with his own glory? He's giving it up. He's giving it up so that you could have eternal life. He has every right to maintain that glory. He is God. He is part of the Trinity, which is a whole different sermon. But yet he is so different in how he reacts in his own chase for glory. Jesus choose, chooses to trade his own glory for our own guilt and death on the cross. And that's why Jesus says, look to my glory. Why does he say that? Well, one, he says, look, look to my glory because I know you're chasing your own glory, but I can give it to you. But also this. To know God, 
to know him and to have eternal life, you have to start on the cross. You cannot start in the abstract. So what I mean by that is this. I could have easily just focused on this first point in the sermon. I could have said, hey, to know God is to have eternal life, so let's do it. Let's do it. But the problem is if you start there, if you're like, okay, I want eternal life, so I'm going to know God, you're going to fail. Because your own glory is going to get in the way. Your own lust for it is going to get in the way. But this is what Jesus says. Look, if you want to have eternal life, know me. See my glory on the cross. Start there if you want to have eternal life. Because on the cross is a story of a God who gave up his own glory to save you. A God who gave up his own glory and became man for eternity. He can't, he, he, the word became flesh and he doesn't reverse that. The word became flesh. He traded his own glory so that you could have a chance for eternal life. We have to start there. We cannot start in the abstract. So if this is all true, how do we practically remind ourselves of this truth on a daily basis? And, and let me close with this. How can we deepen our knowledge for God for eternal life today and seek God's glory? By praying consistently, constantly, and forever. By praying. And let me take a couple moments. Uh, here at True North, as your pastor, and as Jay will mention this too, we suck at praying. We are horrible at praying. You know why? Because we only pray when we need things. We only pray when we want things from God. And yet, look to Jesus in how he prays. Like, what, why did, when this text starts, John notes, uh, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, before he prays, Jesus says, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He lifted his eyes to heaven. Why does Jesus do that? Um, it's not some magical method to, to see God's glory. That's not it. Why does he do that? Why does John note that? Because I think what John is telling us and what Jesus is telling us is this. To pray is to see the deeper spiritual realities of eternal life here on earth. To pray is to see the different realities that God offers you in eternal life. What am I talking about? This is the thing. As I mentioned before, so many of us... Um, our prayer life is so contrastly, it's so different to how Jesus prays. Because we pray only when the unknown scares us. As your pastor, um, and, and Jay will probably note this too, uh, our number one prayer request is usually the fear of the unknown. And, and, and let me make this clear. That's not that's something bad to pray about. Because that's, that's something that God cares about. But usually when people, when I ask someone for a prayer request, it's, it's hey, I have a job interview coming up. What does that mean? I don't know if I'm going to get hired or not. Pray that I do get hired. Good prayer. Oh, pastor, uh, you know, I, I have this relationship. I don't know if I should get married or not. Pray for that, right? There's an unknown. There's a fear of the unknown. That's fine to pray for. But if that's the only reason we pray, it's so different to how Jesus prays. Because this is the thing. We pray to receive things from God in the unknown. Jesus prays to see God in all things, even when he knows all. Think about this. Jesus is praying when he knows he's going to die. Jesus prays when he knows what's going to happen and yet he still comes to God. Why? Because Jesus is not concerned with receiving, just simply receiving things from God. He wants to be able to see God in all things around him. So he prays. The hour is coming, God. I know, I know, and you know, the cross is coming. I'm going to die. But God, let me pray. So that I can see you even in that. 
Tim Keller puts it better in his own words. We see prayer as medicine. Jesus sees prayer as food. We see prayer to fix our lives. Jesus sees prayers to sustain his life. Prayer is an invitation to set our eyes in adoration, as we mentioned before, in the eternal life that's available to us now, to experience it now, to remind us that we know, not just logically, but we relationally know a God who has given us his own son to redeem and save us. And that is so important. To put it uh, even in my own example, and I, and I kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago, but a new experience happened to me um, because of covid uh, at my daycare, uh, my kids uh, have been done, they've been doing Christmas presentations every year. Because of COVID, we've never been able to see them. Um, this was the first year that we could go. Um, Eli, my son, he has no social anxiety. Uh, like this morning, I asked him, like, Eli, if I wasn't there, would you be sad? And he's like, no, I don't care, right? I want to perform, right? I'm like, okay, cool. Um, Sydney, my daughter, is very different. Um, you know, I, I love my daughter. She's, she's a, a unique human being. Um, She's very shy uh, at first. And then when you break that barrier, she'll love you, right? And I remember, so Eli did this presentation, and he's fine. I don't even knew I was there. And then Sydney comes uh, a couple of minutes later. And this is the thing. When Sydney comes in, they come into this small room, and it's just packed with adults with masks on with phones. It's, it's a very stress-inducing environment for kids. So Sydney, my daughter's you know, barely three walks in, or three and a half, she walks in. She's terrified. She's terrified. She's looking everywhere of like, where am I? Who are these people? Like, I, I don't know what's going on. She walks in and I can tell she's terrified. And I'm trying my best with my mask to show her like, I'm here. Your dad is here. I'm like right here. And she's, she's like, she stops at the door because she's so scared. And then she sees me and her face changes. She lights up. And she comes up. And I keep giving her a thumbs up. And she keeps giving me a thumbs up. And there's four songs. The first two songs, she's just a statue. Right? She doesn't move. I just keep telling her, like, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. Just keep giving her a thumbs up. And the third song, she opens up. She finally does her emotions. The fourth song, she's just going crazy. She's loving it. What happened? This is the thing. I could not go up. Th- I mean, I could have, but I didn't go up there and be like, I'm right here with you. So let's do it together. I couldn't do that. That'd be weird, right? I was at a distance. I was there, but not completely there. But as long as she knew that I was in the room with her, as long as she's reminded by that, she had the strength, she had the life, the eternal life almost, to, to conquer her own anxieties, to, to perform that performance. Why do I tell you this? This is what prayer is. Um, prayer is not asking God for things. This is the thing. You could get everything in the world, but you would still not be happy. Prayer is reminding yourself of a deeper reality that you cannot see, that my, God, my Father, that Christ has come to save me, is with me. That's what prayer is. And let me end with this. A person who prays has to live in hope and not cynicism. Look, look at Jesus' prayer. Um, he had every right to be annoyed. Right? He could have easily been like, Lord, the hour has come. Man, these people are stupid, right? Judas is going to betray me. Peter says he's with me, but he's gone, right? Like, like the church is going to be a mess. Paul has to come and write a bunch of letters. God, this is stupid. This is, he, he had every right to be cynical. Every right. I would have done that. I'm a cynic at the core of my heart, and yet he does not. He does not because why? A prayerful person is a hopeful person. If you read the rest of the prayer, it's filled with hope, even though Jesus knows he's going to die. 
to live an eternal life is to not live in cynicism, but hope. I'm telling you this as a cynic. I know cynicism is cool. It's a cool thing to do. That's why many of us, when you walk into church, it's so hard to believe because you want to be a cynic. Why? Cynicism is defense mechanism. You hurt yourself before the world can hurt you. But when you pray, what you're saying is, no, I'm going to give that up. And I'm going to hope in this eternal life that Jesus offers me. I'm going to give up my own glory because I see Jesus' glory. I'm going to pray to be reminded that my Father is with me wherever I go. Tyler Statton, who's a, who's a pastor, writes this. To pray is to risk being naive. It's to risk believing. It's to risk playing the fool. To pray is to ask to trust someone who might let you down. To pray is to get our hopes up. We've learned to avoid that, so we avoid prayer. Look, if you want to access this eternal life that's available for you now, you can't just think your way through it. You have to pray your way through it. And this is the thing. How do you pray? I don't know. Prayer is a very mysterious thing, but you've got to start somewhere. Maybe the one thing you can start with is this. Stop praying for what you need. Pray to remind yourself what you have in God. Pray not for, and you know, you can pray for requests and thankfulness and all those things. That's not bad to pray about. The Psalms are full of prayers like that. But the core of every prayer in the Psalms is, Lord, let me be reminded of what I have in you no matter what is either given or taken from me. That is eternal life available to you today. Let's live and pray in this eternal life that Jesus offers us in relationship with him as he gives up his own glory on the cross. Let's pray.